Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. Let's remember, Yaakov has worked for Lavan. Why did he work for Lavan? To get a bride. To get a bride, and then... A second bride. A second bride, which was not his intention originally. And so he... Um, he's been working for Lavan. We've talked a bit about, you know, looking at Mesopotamian inheritance stuff when we talked about Hagar and when we talked about this idea of surrogate motherhood and who's the social mother, who's the biological mother. So there's also stuff, obviously, around sons, who inherits and how. So there is a theory that, that Yaakov has been working for Lavan and their arrangement has in some way been it could be interpreted that Lavan has, in a sense, adopted Yaakov, and Yaakov therefore would be his, would inherit from Lavan. And that one of the reasons it, the the scholars want to interpret it that way is that this next verse seems to suggest something's shifted, and without some kind of reason this looks kind of odd and random and something weird that we don't know what it is. So think in your mind as we read this, a shift in possible inheritance issues, right? That's been our focus. We're reading a lot through that lens this morning. So take all of those weeks that we've been doing that and apply it here because I think it's helpful. All right. So someone want to start at 31.1. Now we heard the things that Levon's sons were saying. Jacob has taken all that was our father's, and from that which was our father's, he has built up all this wealth. Jacob also saw that Levan's manner toward him was not as it had been in the past. Then the Lord said to Jacob, Return to the land of your fathers where you were born, and I will be with you. Jacob had Rachel and Leah called to the field where his flock was, and said to them, I see that your father's manner toward me is not as it had, has been in the past, but the God of my father has been with me. As you know, I have served your father with all my might, but your father has cheated me, changing my wages time and again. God, however, would not let him do me harm. If he said thus, the speckled shall be your wages, then all the flocks would drop speckled young. And if he said thus, the streaked shall be your wages, then all the flocks would drop streaked young. Streaked young. God has taken your father's livestock and given it to me. Once at the mating time of the flocks, I had a dream in which I saw that the he-goats, the he-goats mating with the flock were streaked, speckled, and mottled. And in the dream, an angel of God said to me, Yaakov, here, Thank you. Thank you. I answered. And he said, note well that all the he-goats which are mating with the flock are streaked, speckled, and mottled, for I have noted all that Levan has been doing to you. I am the god of Bethel where you uh, anointed a pillar and where you made a vow to me. Now arise and leave this land and return to your native land. Okay, we're going to stop here to, to unpack a little bit, <laughs> right? So, <laughs> So he heard, who heard? Jacob, Jacob heard all the things that the B'nai Lavan, the descendants of Lavan, have been saying... And what are they saying? An example is here. Has not Jacob taken all that was our father's? And from that which was our father's, he has built up all his wealth. So they're making a claim that would be different than what Yaakov would claim, right? Yaakov would be saying, uh, escuchame. <laughs> I've right my labor has been the bride price for these two wives. I didn't even agree to that. I got tricked into that, whatever. And I was only given you know, this many sheep, only the spotted ones and the streaked ones. Well, those are, guess what? Anomalies. They are genetically, what, do you, well, not, what is not dominant? Recessive. recessive. So recessive that it's more like albinism mm-hmm. among us, right? That spotted and, and streaked were... Not good. Not good and not um, likely to happen in the next generation. So Lavan once again was trying to trick, not trick, but trying to put Yaakov in a position where you, you, get, you get from the flocks that you're tending, right. you know, anything that's speckled or streaked. And, and it happens that 
um, he's very clever, Jacob, and understands a bit about genetics and animal behavior and arranges things so that the spotted and streaked reproduce and give off spotted and streaked young, which increases his wealth, right? The flock is the wealth. So he's, he's now wealthy. So Yaakov would have a very different argument than the brothers. This is one of the places scholars say because Yaakov is in line for inheritance. Possibly Lavan had, we don't get Lavan necessarily having sons when Yaakov arrives on the scene. He has two daughters. We don't hear anything about sons. So possibly Yaakov is adopted as the heir. Then Lavan has natural sons in the course of 14 years who now argue he's taking our inheritance. He's taking our wealth. So that's one, one scholarly um, argument. If there were no sons, would his daughters have inherited? So presumably... Because you said, you said the children. Does it say sons here or does it say... Um, you said B'nai. Right. So if it were women, it would have, said, would have said something else. Okay. Um, so, so all over um, Near Eastern Mesopotamian law codes, we see, should someone adopt a heir, because they are, don't have an heir, should they adopt one and then have natural sons of their own, here's what happens, right? You can't just disinherit the adopted one. Like, they inherit equally and or, you know, there's lots of different cases, but it's all over ancient Mesopotamian law codes, which tells us it was a common occurrence. So we have no reason not to think something like that might be going on here, which also might impact why Yaakov makes the decision to leave. Of course, the tradition is going to put it in a vision and it's going to tie it to the divine, of course, but the foundation might be right in something a little more practical. Thank you, Laura, for that. Yes. Okay. So Jacob also saw that Lavan's manner toward him has not been as it has in the past. So it's not just the, that there are other sons who are rumbling. Lavan's manner has changed. He's always been tricking Yaakov. So what's changed? It clearly means something else. Not just trying to, you know, squeeze what he can out of Yaakov. That's, that's been the case since he met him. What's changed? It seems to be some kind of attitude towards Yaakov by Lavan that's not articulated exactly here. So God says to Yaakov, return to the land of your ancestors where you were born, and I will be with you. So Yaakov had Rachel and Leah called to the field where his flock was. Why? Why didn't he just go home and say, women, we need to talk? He wanted privacy. He wanted privacy. Sarah, very diplomatic way to say. He might be under surveillance. Mm -hmm. And so he needs privacy because he's about to do something. He's about to suggest something Mm -hmm. that could get him in big trouble. Exactly. He does not want Levant to know. So clearly he's in some kind of danger making the decision that he's making here. So what's also interesting is we take this part of the story for granted, but how could it have looked? He, Levan's manners changed. The sons are rumbling against him. God says, return to the land of your ancestors. What could the next verse have been? And he left. And he left, (laughs) right? He took his wives and his children and he left. That's not what we have. Interestingly enough. We have, he calls Rachel and Leah to the field. He calls his wives and calls them to the field where he then makes a speech. He doesn't say, look, this is what's got to happen. This is what I've decided, right? Right? He goes into this whole huge defense of his position and a whole huge thing about God and God calling him and, right, so... He didn't have to do any of that. So what, what does this indicate to us? They're, maybe they're still deeply attached to their father's home. And that his wives have power because he couldn't just And that he feels that they deserve or they demand in general, I don't know, you know, either one, that 
that he confer with them. They have some agency. He's not just going to pick them up and carry them off. It seems these women have agency in their own lives, in their own world. These are women who are attached to what we've been talking about with right Tuval's work. They're attached to Mesopotamian, ancient Near Eastern customs and traditions. Very possibly, these women are still involved, and we're going to see in a minute, it looks like they are, still involved with their own traditions. That, that not so much about this yud heh vav business. That's for the, the boys. That's what they do, right? But they might, have very, they might be very invested in staying in their household where they might be leaders next. And it seems something about that's going on because that's part of what happens next. It's interesting that he says, uh, your father's deceived me, though God has not let him harm me. So is that kind of planting another seed in his wife's minds that, ooh, you know, maybe our father could think about harming her husband? It's interesting. I'm looking at the, um, the, the yeah, I'm looking at the Hebrew to see. And the Hebrew is lahara'a imadi, hasn't been able to affect evil against me. But does it say in the Hebrew, God hasn't let Yes. Him. So it seems that he's, one of the ways that that's interpreted is that he's protecting their dignity by not saying, your father deceived me, but I'm smarter. Mm-hmm. I beat him and we're out of here. Because I'm clearly the better guy. I'm Jake. I'm Jake. <laughs> I'm the well, big Jake. He's trying to impress them with Yudhe being more powerful. So a very important point. Mm-hmm. A very important Fair. point. So if they're attached to their own religion and their own expression of relationship to divinity, you know, whatever that is, then possibly Yaakov saying, let's just be clear. That it's yud hey vav hey who's responsible for my wealth, meaning for your wealth. The camels we're about to ride out of here on, purchased with blessings from yud hey vav hey. So even though it might be hard, you're going to need to acknowledge that we have a relationship. With, right, so very, very, very good point. All right. So if he said, right, and then he goes into like more like, you know, the ways that the proof that Lavan tried to keep him down and keep him poorer than Lavan. And then <clears throat> he tells him about this vision that he has and that all of this is related to yud heh uh, and that he's gotten this command, this call from that deity to return to his native land. All right, now we're going to go to their response. Verse 14. Rachel and Leah made this response to him. Have we any longer a portion of it or inheritance in our father's house? Are we not like foreigners to him? He sold us and has completely eaten up our money. Since all the wealth that God has taken away from our father is ours and our children's, so now do just what God has commanded you. So <clears throat> why does why does Rachel answer first? She's the well, she was the one that he spoke to first. It doesn't say she was no, no, it, it just it doesn't it just says so Rachel and Leah, yeah. So why is Rachel listed first? Okay. She's the favored wife. Yeah. She's the favored wife. Okay. Someone had to be. Someone had to be. She's the youngest. She's the youngest. The youngest is always. That's right. She's the youngest. She's the one he's he been he close to yeah. the longest. Yes. Yeah, she has more. She has more with itness. <laughs> she has more with itness. Yeah. She's the one he fell in love with. She's the one he fell in love with, and... She probably feels uh, uh, that she is uh, closer to him, and she can speak. And she's the victim of Lavan's trickery. Mm-hmm. Just like the spotted and striped, she is a victim of what he did. I have to believe 
she's here first because she is the most wronged party of everybody. By Think the, about it. By the marriage thing? Yes. Yeah. Lavan yes, yes, took yes. from her, her right. with, we don't know, the Midrash protect. I should. Ooh, I almost used a bad word. Um, the Midrash <laughs> imagines Imagine. that Rachel agrees and goes along with the plan, right? Because they need, they need to. They can't, right? So, um, and so, but but the, if you look at the text and you look at the story, really, Lavan presumably without Rachel's knowledge or permission took from her. What did he take from her? Exclusive access to her lover's bed. He took exclusive access to her husband. He gave forever access to her lover, to her sister. Forever. Ouch. Nobody has more stake in what happened and what Lavan has done and what he deserves or doesn't deserve than Rachel. Because she was the first that was wronged. She was the only one truly wronged. I mean, Leah, possibly it's not great for her either, but Rachel lost on all fronts, on all counts. So we get an interesting, and there's no reason to know this from looking at the text. You have to have uh, the notations in my version uh, of, the, of the Torah commentary. Uh, there's no reason to know this, but this is a rhetorical legal formula, what she says now. Have we still a share in the inheritance of our father's house? This is a rhetorical statement. We see it in Samuel and in Kings, this exact formulation and in those two places, it is a declaration of repudiation of allegiance. It's repudiation of somebody's claim to my loyalty and my allegiance to them. So what have they just done? Cut themselves off. They've disinherited themselves. They've cut themselves off and they have changed alliance. So whatever it is they're attached to in their own culture, in their own home, in their own customs, in their own expectations of what their future would be, they repudiate it at this moment in terms of staying. But clearly for Rachel, it ain't over. It ain't over. Also, they talk about Elohim. So in a sense, they're accepting Yudhei Vavhei. So they are... Either accepting words. <laughs> so Elohim, just that usage is, of course, plural. Oh. So for them, <laughs> it's probably no big deal to include yud hey vav hey. It's collective, right? They, they have their goddesses and their whatever, and yud hey vav hey. So possibly this oh. is one of the reasons Elohim is a very... Strange word. Conc- uh, I mean, a very good way for them to refer to. But we use it as one God. Ah, uh, yeah. Sarah, you're looking like you want to no. say something. Really? Really? Okay. Is Leah just passive in all of this? Well, it's, she speaks too. Then Rachel and Leah answered him. So, you know, it seems she speaks. But, but the tradition pays very careful attention to who's listed how. Right? Because Leah's the oldest... Really, it should say, you know, he calls his wives and Leah and Rachel answer him. So when it's flipped, we always have to go, you know, like, what? What's and up with that? In our liturgy. And when in our liturgy, the, it is when flipped. When we name the Imahot, we name the, the four mothers, we always name Rachel first. Correct. Mm-hmm. Correct. And given the way we've been reading these stories, there are some of my colleagues who, when they pray the Amidah, mm-hmm. they add Hagar, oh. Zilpah, and Bilha to the Imahot. So, yes, it's not the covenantal, you know, blah, 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 but the 12 tribes were made by four women. And those 12 tribes are the ones we say are, right, the deliverers, the, the conduit through which comes the covenant, right? Well, it wasn't just Leah and Rachel, folks, right? So some of my colleagues put Bilha and Zilpah in there because they feel like history was one thing in terms of women's power and access to their own biological offspring. But we don't have 
but we evolve. And can't we acknowledge them differently now? Rabbi, the, the phrase, have we any longer a portion of our inheritance, that sounds to me like they were cut off rather than they cut themselves Ve- Reuben, very, very, very good reading. Very close reading. So, so let's talk about that. So what, he's absolutely right that they are saying, because she, she goes on, doesn't she? Surely he regards us as outsiders Foreigners. now that he has sold us and has used up our purchase price. So what are they claiming? It's a very specific claim. Reuben, unpack it. What are they saying? I ask questions. (laughs) (laughs) You ask the questions around here. They're saying they sold them to Jacob. So what does that mean? He's treating us like slaves. Slaves. Because Yaakov paid with seven years of labor. So everybody has to pay a bride price. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's if you were to sort of rephrase that rhetorical question in sort of more contemporary usage, essentially what they're saying, does it look like we've got anything <laughs> left for us here? Right? So... Well, di- di- didn't uh, you pay the bride price, but you expect to get something back. You're supposed to get a dowry and all of that. Ha, 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 ha. disappear? Ha, ha, ha. Thank you, Rob. That's exactly what they're charging. Yes, everyone has to pay a bride price for a bride. The reason for that being that some of that would have been settled on the bride and her offspring, regardless of what happens with the husband. What if he gets killed by a snake bite on their honeymoon? There has to be some way to protect the bride and her family. Presumably, she would still then be part of her father's family, but there has to be... She's now destitute. Like a bunch of bling and stuff. A bunch of bling and stuff, right? So, okay, I just had a great image of a tent and robes and bling. That's very interesting. The ADD mind at work. So um, so now I have to get it back to where, where it's supposed to be. Um, so the, they are claiming that exactly right, that they have been disinherited. Just like Ruben said, He's disinherited us. He's essentially sold us because he's used up our bride price, which should have been reserved for a dowry, for an inheritance cushion, should something happen to Yaakov. Thank God Yaakov is industrious, and he's smart, and he's a nice businessman, and he's done well for himself. That's not the point. He's done well for himself despite the fact that Lavon tried to... Try to stop him from doing that. Stop him from doing that. (laughs) Exactly. To trick him out of it, right? Even so, he's successful. Even so. They feel betrayed on every level. Rachel, on we can imagine how many levels. And now they go to even the financial level. He's taken from us what is rightfully ours. So we've talked a lot about Mesopotamian inheritance. When we talk about ritual and we talk about, right, Hagar and Sarah both needing an heiress, the, right, the youngest daughter would inherit the ritual obligations. So you're saying to stay behind? No. Well, I'm saying that Let's keep in mind Rachel as youngest daughter and what happens next. He's tricked us. He's used you. He's eaten up our inheritance and our bride price, which makes us essentially slaves. We are so out of here. But, B-U-T. Let's go on. Jacob then got up and mounted his sons and his wives on camels. He drove all his livestock and all his possessions that he had acquired, the livestock in his possession that he had acquired in Hadan Aram, to go to his father Isaac in the land of Canaan. While Laban had gone to shear his sheep, Rachel had stolen her father's household gods, and Jacob had deceived Laban the Aramean by not informing him that he was fleeing. 
Jacob fled with all that was his, going up and crossing the river and setting his face toward the hill country of Gilead. Not until the third day was Laban told that Jacob had fled. He then took his kin with him and pursued Jacob, a seven-day trek, and caught up with him in the hill country of Gilead. God then came to Laban the Aramean in a dream of the night, saying to him, Beware, lest you speak to Jacob, beginning well, but ending ill. <laughs> dun, 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 dun. Only Laura can read it exactly like that. More? Um, Please. Please. When Laban caught up to Jacob, Jacob had pitched his tent by the mountain. Laban then drove in his tent pegs among his kinsmen near Mount Gilead. Laban said to Jacob, What have you done, deceiving me and driving my daughters off like prisoners of war? Why did you flee by stealth and deceive me by not informing me? I would have sent you off with festive songs, with hand drum and lyre. Nor did you give me a chance to kiss my sons and daughters. How foolishly you acted. It is well within my power to do you an injury. But the God of your father said to me last night, Beware lest you speak to Jacob, beginning well but ending ill. Now then, you have gone away because you yearned so desperately for your father's house. But why did you steal my gods? Jacob responded by saying to Laban, Because I was afraid. Because I said to myself, Suppose you steal your daughters from me. But the one with whom you find your gods shall not live. See for yourself in front of our kin what I have with me and take it back. Jacob did not know that Rachel had stolen it. Laban then entered Jacob's tent and Leah's tent and the tent of the two maids and found nothing. He then left Leah's tent and entered Rachel's tent. Rachel had taken the household gods and put them in a camel's saddlebag and was sitting on them as Laban rummaged through everything in the tent and found nothing. She now said to her father, May my lord not take offense that I cannot get up in your presence, for the way of women is upon you. <laughs> he searched but did not find the household gods. That's why her name is first. Oh. That's why. <laughs> Bert says that's why her name is first. Well, one clever lady. Remember, remember from, from chapter one of this story that, that she's the one with plenty of agency around the, around the well. I mean, the, 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 this is not a wallflower kind of a... That's exactly right. That's exactly right. She's cast in the mold of Rivka, right, and Sarah. She's, she's an actor. She is not to be acted upon only, right? So... So we get this whole thing about disinheritance. All right, so Lavan is up shearing the sheep. Remember from our other story of Judah and Tamar? That takes a while. And everyone goes to the sheep shearing because you need all that, all those hands on deck to handle the flock, and it's three days. It's a whole big to-do. Jacob's not stupid. He waits until most everybody who would be a threat is gone. The men, they're gone to the sheep shearing festival. So he waits for that and puts his children and his wives on camels and drove off all his livestock and all the wealth that he had amassed, right? And that he had acquired to go to his father Yitzchak in Knaan. We know that Lavan is shearing sheep. And while that's going on, while Jacob is getting everybody settled and, and ready to go, what is Rachel doing? Stealing his idols. Ah, ha, ha, ha. Did they explain why she took these things? Ruben, did they explain why she took these things? All right. So, these are trafim. We have many, 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 many examples of trafim from the ancient world, and we have these kinds of objects, these kinds of artifacts 
found in Israelite dwellings from every period of Israelite occupation of the land. There is not a period where these do not appear. What does that tell us? All right, so so there are two there are two kinds of faith at work here. Some might argue Yaakov has full faith in Yud Hey Vav Hey. Rachel, not so much. Rachel is in line. Possibly, if we look at Mesopotamian tradition, she's in line to inherit the ritual responsibilities of the family. From her mother, right? So we don't have her mother on the scene. So possibly for Rachel, she's already the ritual director of the family because her mother's not around. She she might feel absolutely entitled that these are her trophim. Lavan has clearly, because it says Lavan's, household gods. She's in his household, so the household gods dwell in Lavan's house and in that sense belong to him. But clearly Rachel is like, mm-mm, those are mine. The latest picture that you showed was of a female trophy. <laughs> right. So most of the trophim were female. <clears throat> So that's that's another reason for she may have felt she needed protection. Exactly right. So well, are you, are you saying this is this is a remnant of, of the fact that there there was matrilineal legal authority uh, at that time? Yes, or slightly before. That is what someone like Savina Tuval argues: is Rachel's doing nothing wrong. What she's done is made it clear to Lavan she is head of this clan. She's, she is entitled to that inheritance, it, ritually, right, to the gods. And he doesn't like, I mean, we, we see, he doesn't like that. So the rabbis want to, first of all, exonerate Rachel. The ones who can't have a terrible answer for this that I detest. For some of them, she does something she's not supposed to do. Even if she does it out of a good intention, which we'll get to, she's not supposed to. She lies about it, and it brings upon, because Lavan makes it clear, or, or Jacob actually says, let, let in whoever's hands these things are be put to death, the rabbis say, and that is in fact what happened. How? She dies in childbirth. It's a horrible horrible interpretation that I just write that, that, that Yaakov unleashes a curse and it doesn't matter whether you have a good reason for what you do when the curse is unleashed it's unleashed and she pays the ultimate price for for, for taking them Right, so if one interprets it as revenge, 100% one could then link it leads to bad things. If one says she's taking what's rightfully hers, she actually, and let's, let's take her death out of it, just take this incident, it seems... She, it, she wins. She, so she's got the trafim. The one argument is by the rabbis who want to exonerate her, and God forbid a million times we should think she's attached to these detestable abominations. She takes them so that Lavan won't slide back into his idol-worshiping ways. <laughs> One rabbinic interpretation. She is loyal to Yudhe Vavhe completely. 
She's a convert completely to Yahwism, and she wants to make sure to save Lavan from idolatry. So she takes the Trephim so that his household won't any longer be idol worshippers. Okay, so A, what would prevent him from prevent him from go getting some new ones? Um, but B, you would think if that's what she was doing, other scholars argue, then she would have destroyed them. Like she would have dumped them in a trash can and a dumpster on the way, right? Like to just make sure they're, why would she want them with, with them? Right, but I'm so I'm I'm arguing absolutely, and that that it makes no sense that she'd keep that fertility symbol with her if she didn't believe in any of that. The rabbis are saying she didn't believe in it. She and she wants to make sure Levon doesn't do that anymore. Then you're going to risk like it just it doesn't add up, Carol. It's also ironic in that she's taken these fertility goddesses. I would I'm not going to use the word karma <laughs> and I'm not going to boomerang it I'll tell you why it's the slippery slope I always talk about once we start going there why does this one have cancer why does this one's child get born deformed well must be it's just a very dangerous theologically slippery, awful slope that too often has been used to, to explain the tragedies of human existence in such a way to place res- ultimate responsibility not on God, who is just and merciful, but on us for triggering right a, a curse, a car- I mean, car- whatever you want to call it, it makes me very nervous to start going down so it's that road. Because what she talks about is for, for money and what she belongs, what belongs that's been taken. So this is she's taking a piece of what she believes. Mm-hmm. I think yes. I think this is an act of empowered female yes, agency. Because of God, she doesn't say that. That's right. She says we've been we've been ripped off here. You have and we have. And so we're out of here. Our, he may have stolen our inheritance from us, but there's an inheritance I'm not willing to part with. Is her mother alive? We don't know. And we don't hear anything. And so some people want to say no, because we don't hear anything at all. But we don't have evidence. We don't have any textual evidence for that. And then Lynn, you had your hand up earlier. Well, it's interesting in the commentary here, um, it's, she says that the idols that were taken are symbols of inheritance and leadership, and so she deceived her father the way Jacob deceived his father in taking the birthright through deception. So they're both deceivers. Right. So that's one, that's one way to look at it, is she does the same thing he does. She tricks her father you know, into taking the inheritance that rightfully belongs to her elder sister. Just having been immersed and marinating in Mesopotamian Near Eastern religion recently, I, I, that may be the, the later interpretation, but I think the original interpretation coming out of her Mesopotamian background would have been she feels entitled to the inheritance that is rightfully hers, which are those Trephim. Paula? Uh, I was going back to dying in childbirth, that this was a... a not an unusual correct yeah. correct time. that's right so, so that's many, right many women died that's right and could they have all had curses well, so, so that's that's exactly why I won't go there is because it was a very common occurrence it's tragic and the Torah does not link them the rabbis link them not the Torah regardless of trying to make Rachel look really nice and Levon look really bad. <laughs> the story here, as I see it, Yaakov says to her, we're leaving, we're going. And her first reaction is not, well, what about the kids? What about my family? What about people other than Levon? What about my culture? It's, what about my inheritance? What about my money? And then when Levon comes, whether you believe him or not, he says, you went and I couldn't even kiss my children goodbye. 
So he comes off, at least he comes off to me and my grandchildren, he comes off to me as a lot more compassionate when their first reaction is, what about our inheritance? All right, so let's go exactly. I'm just looking at the story. But I think even just looking at the story, I think I could argue for, or one could argue for, even with that, a different interpretation, which it's not that she's angry or concerned about the money. They, it's they, mm-hmm. Rachel and Leah. I, money is a symbol of something else. The people I deal with mm-hmm. who have been cut out of their parents' will mm-hmm. or, or somebody comes along and marries mom or dad mm-hmm. in later in life and then inherits everything and the children and grandchildren inherit mm-hmm. nothing, they are not angry about the money. Mm-hmm. They are never angry about the money. Mm-hmm. They are furious because they're hurt. Because what it says is, I don't love you. I cut, you don't belong. Or I belong to this new spouse in a different way than I do to you. And the, all the things I'm supposed to do to demonstrate that I love you, caring for you, making sure you're financially set, making sure the grandchildren have a college education, it's all gone because of the and they often people don't get over that but it's not the money and so and so i think what she's saying is we've been treated like mm-hmm. foreigners not like family and mm-hmm. so we are not family like this is not family if this, or this is family like this is not where our loyalty lies it lies in what we can create as, as our family. No, but, but she's not asking, she's not asking what about the money with the implication that there is any money there to get. It's not like leaving and if you walk away, you're walking away from some inheritance. This is, you know, you don't have to, you don't have to ask me twice. There's nothing there for me mm-hmm. to get. It's, clearly, it was taken. It was Other taken than Levon, they have, they feel no connection anymore. To that whole thing, right? But the, but I mean, the, they're really cut off from the culture, from the whatever. Because he's saying, let's not let's move down the block, <laughs> not let's move out of Dad's right. house, right? But we're going. But it's not it's not an entirely different culture, because remember, it's not Israel yet, no, right? But it's it, but it's, it's a, a related. It's a completely yeah, but different. It's a, we place. can imagine it's in the region. It's yeah. a it's a related. So yes, it's a strange place, mm-hmm. a new place. I wouldn't imagine, though, it'd be... I mean, it's like us moving from here to Canada. Yes, it's a slightly different dialect. Yes, there's different money. Yes, their customs are different. But it's not an entirely right. other culture. But you're not coming back, and it's, you're, you're too far to visit on Sundays. Yes. <laughs> so there is that. But it's not entirely... Di- right? You know, it's not Portugal. <laughs> What's wrong with Portugal? <laughs> I don't even know sometimes. Don't, all right. So uh, don't ask me. So, um, <laughs> exactly. So, um, Lavon, so, so she, oh, wait, so I wanted to say one more thing. So, so the other option is she truly, one of the rabbinic interpretations is she would have thrown them away if she was trying to keep Lavon from idolatry. One other interpretation is she does still fully believe in the efficacy of those of those trafim, and she doesn't want to leave them in Lavan's house <laughs> because what? He can use them against her? Yes. If he has them, they could tell him where they are. They could disclose something, or they could be That's like voodoo. powerful <laughs> agents mm-hmm. used against them, and she's certainly not going to leave C4 behind. You take it with you, but, right? If anybody's going to use it, it's going to be Jack Bauer. I have a question. So if, if she hadn't stolen those pieces and it was Jacob who made the decision to take everybody and in Levant's eyes, it's now Jacob who's stolen everyone, at that point, if nothing had been taken from his house except his daughters and the mm-hmm. box and everything, would the daughters go back to Levant? Because if that's the case, because of Jacob stealing, then she might have stolen them so that she would also not be, you know what I'm saying? That she would also be cast out. That she wouldn't have an option anymore. So maybe maybe on some subconscious level, she does something to ensure that the bond is cut and that there's no way back. 
Possibly. Possibly. She's going to... Children. Huh? To take away the fertility, possibly, of Laban to other... Ah, interesting. So, you've impacted my family life? No worries. Right? What goes around comes around. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to impact your future fertility of your sons and their wives that are taking my place. Did you imply that these trafim belong to her mother? I did. Because in Mesopotamian tradition, right, there are things that would have passed from the mother, right, in a matrilineal, matrilocal culture, which it was, pre-patriarchy. And we're at a transition. This is the, this, by the way, y'all, nobody argues that this is the transition to patriarchy. Nobody argues that. This is the record of the transition to patriarchy. We have within it traces of what went before. But it was matrilineal in some ways, matrilocal, right? And so some things would have passed through the father, for sure. But it was more of an equal role. But there was definitely stuff that went from mother to daughter and ritual aspects of that that for sure would have been through the maternal line, including some inheritance issues that are not just about ritual. And if she did no longer had her mother, either with her or because she was dead, uh, these things would have taken on greater significance. I think that, that, is exactly, that is exactly what I'm asking us to hold as a real possibility, and I want to link it in just a second. Um, Jacob doesn't claim because Lavan might be claiming. I mean, this is still. I'm still head of this clan. I'm still head of this household. Remember, they lived in larger households. They didn't live in nuclear family units, right? They lived in more like a compound. The compound is Lavan's, so they're Lavan's trafim, meaning his clan's trafim. Rachel seems to be saying that may be true, but I'm, I'm the one who inherits them. Right, right. So technically, they're the trafim of the house of Lavan. Does that make sense? The Ken, you know, the Kenneth Klein trafim. Okay, but who, who in that Kenneth Klein clan has ultimate rights to everything that goes along with what the trafim represent? And Rachel seems to be saying that would be me. I don't know whether this is just new or whether it's something that's gone on for a long time, but I feel like the rituals are often passed down, that the mother of the family is sort of the one who's making sure there's the candles are on the table. Okay, right? so you went there before me. Okay, so, fine. That's all right. You want to sit here? So, this is exactly... Um, Rabbi Shoni Leibowitz um, wrote a book called God, Sex, and Women of the Bible. Um, which I taught at a Catholic college. Um, I taught women of the Bible through the lens of this book, God, Sex, and Women of the Bible. My class was full. (laughs) Standing room only, right? Because at a Catholic college, wait, sex is in the title (laughs) of a class about the Bible and women. Wait, what? So um, in that book, that's exactly where she goes, is where Sarah and Laura just went, is that really always there has been a deep attachment in the home and in the home ritual to the women being the officiants, right? On some profound level, there is a passing from mother to daughter of the Shabbos candlesticks. And that whenever we have stories of our people fleeing for their lives, we have so many stories of women risking everything to take those candlesticks with them. Risking everything. Rachel risks everything. There's a death sentence decreed for what she does. Always, in every generation, we have powerful stories of those candlesticks or something like that that is the ritual of the home, that is what my grandmother gave 
to my mother or my father's mother, my grandmother gave to her new daughter-in-law. And there is a deep, deep connection to those ritual objects that is not about belief, about theology, right? About, it's about the connection. And when those people are gone, isn't our connection to those objects so much stronger, as you said, Sarah? It's one thing when they're alive, it's beautiful. It's another thing entirely when they're gone. Because the deep tragedy of being human is that we love so, so strongly what goes away. And ironically, what's left are the objects that they touched, the objects that they wore, the objects that were connected to their memories of their, and it goes on and on and on all the way back, and it's not until we reach a certain age that we understand both the tragedy and the staggering beauty of that connection that survives death. We still have in traditional Judaism that Jewishness is passed from mother to children. Indeed. And aside from the other reasons you might say that happens, or like whether that's Cossacks. right or whether it's wrong or, or whatever. Um, I don't know if I've ever told you this, but I learned that from some speaker, it was talking about Sifrei Torah, mm-hmm. and that you could tell the safety of a Jewish community, its perception of its safety by the size of the Sifrei Torah in the ark. Because... Like the candlesticks, you know, on a personal level, what are you as a community who has to flee because a pogrom is coming, the SS is coming, what are you going to take as your communal right, symbol of your people's connection to all of that? The Torah. And if it's huge and heavy and laden with all of this silver stuff, you, you, how, how are you going to take, right, right? So... I want you from now on, as we open the ark, and you look at those Sifrei Torah, notice how big they are. And when you hold them, notice how heavy they are. And when you hold them, notice how heavy they are. And hard to stick under your mm-hmm. raincoat. Right, Robert? They, so it's, there's an ostentation to it because we love Torah and we want it to have it be mitzvah, making a mitzvah even more beautiful and having it big and beautiful. There's, but there's another thing it means to me every time we stand in front of the open ark. And okay, now I'm gonna. And every time we open the ark at a bar bat mitzvah, and we place our hands on those children's heads, and ask that they be kept safe. We do it in front of Sifrei Torah that are very large. Thank God we live in a time and a place where those B'nai Mitzvah we trust are safe. That their Jewish status doesn't put them at risk. But that is not the case for so many children, thank you, coming of age. And it's not just Jewish. You know, with the, the bombings in Paris, you know, they interviewed one person who was a refugee from Congo. And she said, of course, I grieve for my Parisian brothers and sisters, of course. And in the Congo, children are slaughtered daily. They're commanded to kill their parents with machetes at gunpoint. Where's the outcry? Where's the world saying enough? We won't stand for this. So as our children are... As we ask God's blessing, as we ask the, you know, the universe to hold them and keep them safe, I, you know, I can't help but think, and, you know, what, what would it take? What does it take from us to live into a time where no child is at risk for who they are or who they're not or what clan they're connected to or what religion or what language or what skin color or what economic class? What, what would it take? to be able to create a world in which there's just the regular tragedies of cancer and polio and like what 
Well, there's enough tragedy bound up with just being human and fragile and finite and loving that which is going to die anyway. So I'm going to share with you, in closing, the words of my teacher of blessed memory who died of breast cancer at the height of her career. And for me, the tragedy of that is that we have lost whatever she would have written and would have taught. She was at the height of her intellectual power, and we would have seen, I think, Many, many works come out from her that would have elucidated a lot more of this. She was an expert in cuneiform, which is the language that precedes Hebrew. Um, And this is from her book, Reading the Women of the Bible. She wrote one called In the Wake of the Goddesses. She was an expert in those religions that predated Israelite religion in the region. Her name is Dr. Tikva Freimer-Kensky. And so she... She's talking about the matriarchs and coming to the end of of that piece. And she says, the two first matriarchs are notable for determining the success of their sons, often against their husband's inclinations. The assertiveness of these Genesis mothers should not surprise us. Recent anthropological fieldwork in contemporary rural Greece and Turkey, both unabashed self-proclaimed patriarchies, show that wives and mothers can be to all appearances subordinate women and nevertheless exercise enormous real power within their households and villages. In the case of Sarah and Rivka, their own preferences are made more powerful with divine charge and divine knowledge. These women temper paternal authority to bring about God's will. The third generation does not pass as smoothly into the fourth. It begins much the same, as Jacob finds Rachel as a young woman at a well, beautiful as Rivka was beautiful, and he loves her as Isaac loved, as Isaac loved Rivka. A younger child favored over the older, Rachel is a kind of echo of Jacob himself. She is ambitious and attached to the trophim of her father's household, symbols of both authority and family. Taking this symbol, her father, taking this symbol, I'm missing a word here or something. Her father said that he cannot find the trafim, but unlike Jacob, she cannot separate from her sister. Right? So Yaakov leaves Esau behind. She doesn't get that option. So Diane would tell us, because we don't get that option. Even Yaakov has to go back and face the Esau. Right? There's an Esau and there's a Yaakov within all of us. And you know, this story is about how those have to live together forever in a certain kind of tension. She does not have the autonomy or the means to decide that she would not like to spend her life trying to best her sister. When her father, Lavan, decides that Jacob must marry both Rachel and Leah, the two sisters become co-wives, rivals for the same husband, and then, like so many women, Rachel dies in childbirth. Rachel's premature death has great consequences for Jacob's family. She's not there to guide her young son, Joseph, as the children grow up, or to mediate between him and his brothers. Leah does not fill Sarah's or Rivka's position in the family. Either she's too busy managing a household with 13 children, or she also dies at some point. Without Rachel's presence, Jacob cannot ensure their transition to the next generation. As the stories of Genesis show, Nobody orchestrates their marital contracts, and the stresses between Jacob and his grown sons and among the brothers threaten to destroy the family. When nobody rocks the cradle, nobody rules the world. So in the words of the late Dr. Tikva Freimer-Kensky, she says the loss of Rachel has far-reaching consequences that because of it, the Joseph narrative is going to unfold the way it does, that there's a threat about rupturing the entire enterprise and that Yaakov on some level is checked out and unable to really manage what she's suggesting the women of our stories do. They are the ones who manage, and, with, and the absence of Rachel proves it. 
that rather than being powerless and only acted upon, it is the women, the matriarchs, uh, who in fact have a great deal of authority and, and creativity and power within the confines of what was the reality of their own lives. May we, the Shabbat, live into their example to accept, as I mentioned earlier, the circumstances of what we're given, the circumstances of things as they are, but may we work within them to bring about what we can discern as what would be an increase of godliness in this world. Shabbat Shalom. You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday morning Torah study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org.